Now, before we dig into this, I, I want to talk about another historical figure. And this is not just going to be history lesson day, but this is a historical figure that I think most of you are familiar with. Um, his name is Winston Churchill. Here's a picture of him. This is how most people envision him, the stern, mean, determined prime minister of England. Right? He's the guy that was the British bulldog, the one who led England through World War II. And then a few years later, led the nation uh, through the early part of the 60s. However, there are other pictures of Winston Churchill, like this one. A little bit laid, more laid back, flashing the peace sign. And when you think about a photo photograph, all the artist does is point and click and capture a moment. Now, in a past, uh, past time in my life, I, I did a lot of photography. And I know there's a lot more to it, especially when it comes to portraits how you tilt the head, lean forward, lean back, lighting, behind, low, high. We get all that. But photography is not the same as painting. And most of the most famous portraits in the world are paintings. And if you think about it, painting is way different than the portraits we see here. Painting involves decisions. It involves choices by the painter as he crafts the portrait. A painter has to choose whether to use a certain kind of paint or a certain kind of other medium. They have to decide what to include in the painting, what to exclude. Sometimes they add in things that would never be there. How many of you have seen Edvard Munch's The Scream? It's a very famous painting, and I've seen countless versions of this. You can buy at places like Target or Home Goods or, or uh, Hobby Lobby, where you have The Scream, and in the back background is Batman or Donald Trump or Joe Biden or some random thing, which those would never go together, but some painter somewhere decided to put them together. Why would they include it? Well, a painting emphasizes things. It de-emphasizes things. It's telling a story. And so when a painter sits down, it's not like a photographer who is click and done. The painter sits and goes, I'm going to put a brush stroke here. I'm going to put one there. I'm going to not include this. I'm going to add that. Because the painter is not only recounting what they see, but they're also recounting a story. They're teaching something through the painting. And it's teaching a lesson. So here's a famous painting of Winston Churchill. This was commissioned by Parliament, painted by a very famous uh, painter, world famous, Sutherland is his last name. This was his official portrait to be hung in Parliament. He sat hours and hours, and Sutherland spent hundreds of hours every single brushstroke to craft this masterpiece. And once you have it, Winston Churchill didn't like it one bit. He says, I don't look like that. That's not me. And as a matter of fact, Winston asked on his last day in Parliament, could I have that painting? And you can imagine what Winston Churchill did with the painting. Some people think he may have cut it up and then burned it or just burned it. We don't know, but it was destroyed. Luckily, we have photographs of it still. You see, painting is unlike any other art form. When you sit for a portrait to be painted, it is telling a story along with telling the history. And I say it's the only form of art that does that, and actually that's not true. We also see portraits being painted by writers as well. And this is where we're going with the book of Matthew. See, Matthew is crafting a 28-chapter portrait of his rabbi. 
of his teacher, of his God. He's crafting a portrait of Jesus Christ. See, Matthew is telling history, but he's also using it to tell us not only who Jesus was, but what he did, why it matters, and why we should choose to follow him. He's not just putting a picture up and going, see this? This is what Jesus looks like. Instead, he's saying, look at this portrait. This is what Jesus looked like, but I'm going to teach through all the things that Jesus is. And you're going to learn who my master is. So that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is our king, our priest, our prophet, our Messiah. So our big picture is that Matthew paints an intimate portrait of Jesus to encourage us to worship him because he is the Christ. He is the Christ. See, Matthew is a master scribe. All right. A lot of times in the New Testament, scribes are, are looked down upon. They're the ones that kind of help the Pharisees with all of their nonsense. But Matthew is a trained writer. He's the disciple of Jesus. He's an ex-tax collector. He went by the name Levi as well. He has written this book, and specifically this genealogy full of names that are hard to pronounce and nobody's going to be naming their kids after. He chose these, he put them there specifically to teach Jesus' history, to teach who Jesus was and why it matters. We're going to see that threefold office of Jesus, king, priest, prophet. See, Matthew's an expert writer. Matthew is amazing. He's a phenomenal writer. And, and that would be eh, kind of interesting. There may be better writers out there. But you see, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of someone's talents, it goes from being, oh, that's pretty cool, to extraordinary, world-changing. Because honestly, the book of Matthew has changed more hearts and more lives than anything Shakespeare ever did, anything Hawthorne ever did, anything fill-in-the-blank. And that's not because Matthew was amazing. It's because God, who indwelt Matthew as the Holy Spirit, helped him to do this. So let's walk through it. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, literally in the Greek, it's two words, Biblios, Genesis. Actually, we can go Biblios, Genesis, Jesus. The book of the Genesis of Jesus. Now, that's a good title, right? That, that sounds interesting, a Genesis of Jesus, okay. We change it to genealogy because that's what this is. It's a list of people. Genealogy sounds like, oh yeah, really exciting. A snooze fest. But when you take Matthew's skill at writing and the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, we get this portrait of Jesus. And sadly, because of where we are in the 21st century, we read right through it and we don't get most of it. But that's because we're the secondary audience. We're the audience that's coming down the road. The audience that Matthew wrote to were the Jews in the first century. And they understood the importance of genealogies. They understood what Matthew was getting at. So we're going to try to dig into that to get past the superficial. One author says these opening verses of Matthew introduce a, its main character and describe his identity. This seeing of, of Jesus as the king, priest, prophet, and Messiah. So the genealogy right now, when we look at it, is black and white to us. It's names and so on. When we look at it from Matthew's perspective, the black and white becomes full, vivid color. And it's amazing. 
So let's go through this together. First word, Jesus. Jesus' name is not an uncommon name. It's the word Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves, which is going to be brought out later in the book of Matthew in chapter 1 when it says, God with us, Yahweh saves. It's a picture of what Jesus is doing. Then we see this word Christ. So it's Biblios, Genesis, Yeshua, Christos. Christos is the word Christ. It's just a transliteration of the Greek. It means Messiah. Or more specifically, it means the anointed one. And this is the start of of Matthew making an argument for who Jesus is by calling him the Christ. See, in the Old Testament times, there were three people, three groups of people that would be anointed. The first was the king. As a matter of fact, other than referring to David as King David, the most common way he's referred to is God's anointed, God's anointed one. So the first group that gets anointed are the kings. The second group that's anointed are the priests. When the high priest would go in and do sacrifices, he would be anointed before going and doing that. And by doing that, he's saying, this is God's chosen high priest to go do this thing. And there's a third group that was anointed, and this was not a physical anointing with oil, but an anointing of God's spirit, and this was the prophets. The prophets would come, and they would teach and say, thus saith the Lord. And all three were considered God's anointed. So the first thing we see is that Jesus is God's anointed. That's going to be a key to understanding what comes next. Then we get to the son of David. Now we know that this is not literal. We know David's son was not Jesus. This means descendant of. Same thing with the son of Abraham. So why is it listed David? You just saw the list. It starts with Abraham. So why does, why does Matthew flip-flop him? Well, he flip-flop, flip-flops him because David's kingly reign is the first point he's going to be making. David is the one. He's the central figure of this genealogy. As a matter of fact, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is called the son of David 12 separate times, more than any other book in the New Testament. Matthew's making the case he is the king. That's why we've titled this sermon series Jesus, King Jesus. Jesus is the king. See, they'd been waiting for the Messiah. We left off in Lamentations. What, what had happened? Jerusalem was destroyed. It was, it was destitute. That's where we left. That's the low point, right? That's where they got to. And all of Israel is praying for God's anointed to come and bring life back to Jerusalem. And this, this king in the line of David has been promised. And this genealogy, it's interesting, David is God's anointed, and we look at his life, and it wasn't exactly easy. David is anointed, right? And what's the first thing he does? He goes out and he kills Goliath, and you're like, this is the start of something big. But it's not, is it? David is chased from here to there by Saul, who is incredibly jealous because Saul is the king. David is God's king. Saul is the king. And eventually, David becomes king, and then it's going to be smooth sailing, right? No, David's kids try to kill him. Not Solomon, but Absalom tries to kill him and take over as king. Isn't it interesting that both of God's anointed kings don't have a smooth sailing to when their kingdom comes? David's life is all topsy-turvy. Some of it David's fault, but a lot of it's just God's plan. And Jesus, I mean, Jesus is constantly having, he, you know, they want to stone him, and he walks miraculously through, and they try to grab him, and he's not there, and so on. The two anointed live these lives of persecution. 
how difficult these anointed lives of this anointed of God have been. Then we get to the son of Abraham, and this is the big daddy of them all promises that Israel has. Remember, Abraham is pulled out of a people group, and God says, you're now my people, you're mine, and you are going to be blessing all of the world, all of the earth. We see that promise in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in Genesis 22, as Abraham's seed will change everything. And so right off the bat, we see the words that Matthew has chosen, he's chosen to say Jesus is a certain thing. He's not just laying out a genealogy. He's saying, this is who Jesus is. And he highlights David and Abraham. So as we walk through the rest of this genealogy, we need to understand some of the structure here. And I, and, and I, love, I love the history that's here. And it's easy to get caught up in the history. And we could do a summary of every single one of these people, especially in the first 214 groups, because we know their history. But I, I don't want to get caught up there because I want to I get to what Matthew is after here. See, as a historian, you can't tell everything. If you were to tell every single person's story, it would make history books unreadable. It'd be like reading, you know, computer code or reading a phone book. It would just be unreadable if everybody's story was all included and completely there. So historians have to choose what to include and what to not include and how to describe it. I mean, think about it. I have a book on my shelf about Teddy Roosevelt, about his trip down the Amazon. And the very first chapter, it describes Teddy Roosevelt's death. It's like, well, what's the rest of the book? Just empty pages? No, it starts with his death because on his deathbed he said, the things I most appreciated about my life were, and he talked about the Amazon. So, but the author's not doing good history, right? It's out of order. No, what he's doing is he's emphasizing what comes next is really important in Teddy Roosevelt's life. And so you can bear with this book of Teddy Roosevelt and malaria and, and the, the, the natives coming after him and death and destruction and, and wait to see how this was so formative. And see, that's how history works. That's what good history is. And see, that's what Matthew is doing here. Matthew is, is selecting parts of Jesus' life throughout the book of Matthew to teach us who Jesus was to teach us theologically who Jesus is. And that's what we see right here when he starts with the son of David and son of Abraham. Not literally the son, that was Solomon. Not literally the son of Abraham, that was Isaac. But instead he's saying, this is the description of Jesus. It's so much more than just that simple picture. This is a full-fledged portrait. The great unveiling of Jesus is what we see here. So this genealogy has a couple of little quick facts I want to point out. The first one is its structure. This genealogy has a certain structure to it. And I liken it to an italicized N. And if you notice on the italicized N, you've got an up portion that's kind of moving forward, and then you've got a down portion that is still moving forward, and then you've got the final up. And so what we see here is we see the first one. The first up is going from Abraham. Abraham by himself to a nation with a king. I mean, Israel was the, they arrived, right? This is the day. And then it all turns for the worst with Solomon. And it keeps going down and down and down when they get to the low point, which is the being kidnapped and taken to Babylon. And they are, they're in Babylon and they're thinking, this is it, this is the worst. And then they're allowed to come back and they can rebuild their temple. Now then the Romans come and it gets worse, but then we see Jesus come. And so the structure of this genealogy is good part, bad part, good part, great part. 
Not only is this structure like that, but there's also some surprises in this genealogy. There are three sets of surprises. The first one we find in the first 14 verses, we see first 14, geneal- first 14 generations, we see four women included. And this is a big deal. It, I'm, I'm going to say, and I think Matthew is arguing, that this is saying that Jesus died for everyone. And we'll, I'll show you that here in a minute. The second surprise is in that second 14, and that's where two names are changed. Two names are changed. Two obvious, are they mistakes? Or is there something else? Well, there's something else. And then there's a third surprise, but you got to wait to the end of the sermon to hear this one. <laughs> Don't worry, I won't spend too long. We'll get to it. So these three clusters, these three surprises could have been there to keep people from falling asleep, but that's not what we see with Matthew. What we see with Matthew is, remember, Matthew is an excellent scribe, and the Holy Spirit is an excellent dictator telling Matthew what to do, impressing on what to include and what not, and there is a bigger thing here, and I'm excited for you to see this portrait. One author said, a genealogy like this in the hands of an average person without the Holy Spirit would have been as dry as the Sahara, but instead, in Matthew's and the Holy Spirit's hands, it becomes a handful of gems. So let's go find those gems. The first thing we see in the first 14, first 14 generations is that Jesus is the king of everyone, everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. Literally, all people. What's included in all? All. Every single one. This is that rise upward. Things are looking better. This accounts for about 850 years in the history of Israel in these 14 generations. So look with me at verse 3. This is the first of the four women that are mentioned. This is Tamar. Tamar is uh, an interesting character to say the least. All four of the women, starting with Tamar, are all Gentiles, to our best guess. One of them we're kind of not sure, but we're pretty sure they were Gentiles. But what's interesting here is Matthew doesn't have to include them. He doesn't include any other women. He doesn't include all the women. But he chooses these four. And it wasn't like Matthew going, I just need to fill the space. You know, my editor wants, you know, 10,000 words, so I'm going to add a couple. No, he didn't do that. He chose these women on purpose. So let's look at these women. First of all, three of them have some questionable character. Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba all made some pretty bad decisions. And Ruth actually has some scandal as well. We'll get to her in a minute. But Tamar, she pretended to be a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law in Genesis 38. So that, that's not a good thing. Remember, just because it's in the Bible in the story doesn't mean go and do likewise. Tamar is an example of that. Then we get to Rahab. Rahab, a literal prostitute, lived in the city of Jericho. Yeah, she helped the spies, but she's a Gentile. She's not worshiping God, and she's a prostitute. And then we get to Ruth. Now, Ruth was also a Gentile. She was a Moabite descendant of Lot's incestuous relationship from Genesis 19. Now, the only scandal with her is that when she lays at Boaz's feet, that could have been considered throwing herself at him. Now, we read the book of Ruth and it's not put that way, but some people could have interpreted it that way. And then lastly, we get the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew doesn't even mention her name. It's that scandalous. But I think what he's doing is he's pointing out this is an illegitimate 
person in Jesus' line. It's Bathsheba. And you remember that story. David, not where he should be. He's staying home when everybody's out at war. And he sees Bathsheba and he says, I want that woman. And he takes her because he's the king and, and has a relationship with her. And then she gets pregnant. And so he sends for her husband. Her husband's a man of honor, does not go and lie with his wife. And then David says, okay, put him on the front, pull back, let him die. In essence, David murders Uriah to take his wife. Now, we don't know Bathsheba's heritage, but her husband was a Hittite, so probably she's a Gentile as well. So we have all four of these women. If you were to go into the Old Testament and pick four women to hold up as the best, I don't think these four would even be in the top ten. There's no Leah, there's no Sarah, there's no Rebecca, there's no Esther. I mean, why are these women there? Well, it's because Matthew's teaching us something here. So what is Matthew teaching? Well, first of all, he's teaching us that the Gentiles are going to be blessed by Christ. Every single one of these women are not Jewish straight up by birth. Abraham is saying all people everywhere can be saved. Men, women, adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, villains, and yes, the Gentiles, which, praise the Lord, I think all of us are. So we are grafted in to the nation of Israel. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. And Paul knows some people are going to say, well, by everyone, you mean the Jews. He goes into the next line, he says, first to the Jews and also the Gentiles. Why? Romans 2.11, God does not show favoritism. Romans 4.5, because God justifies the ungodly. Who is it that he justifies? All the ungodly. It doesn't matter who. So the first thing we see is that these ladies show us Gentiles are allowed in. Second thing we see is that they all have dubious backgrounds, right? They all have some scandal related to their lives. Matthew 1.21 says, Jesus has come to save people from their sins doesn't matter what you've done in your life. If you repent and believe, he is faithful and just to forgive. In fact, Jesus came precisely for these people. Isn't this what we see in Jesus' story? He's constantly going against what is expected. Jesus, you're hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? Why aren't you hanging out with the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Jesus constantly goes to those who would be deemed illegitimate. Because we all are, right? Third, he goes, he does something unexpected. These four women reveal that this is an unexpected twist. Just like being born in Bethlehem of a virgin, unexpected. Just like going to a cross to die and pay for sins, unexpected. And we should be ready to look for the unexpected. Not only in the Bible, but in our lives as well. And trust that the Lord is in control. See, Jesus is not ashamed to welcome broken people. Quite the opposite. Jesus' genealogy says his, his heritage is made up of broken people. So how do we do this? Do we do this well? Do we reach out to those who are downtrodden, that are broken? How do, we, how do we affirm their worth in God's sight and then point them to the Lord? And then look at where this section ends. It says, David the king. Now if you know your story here, there's a whole list of kings. Everybody after David, all the way to the Babylonian deportation, are kings. But only David is listed as the king. That's because he's making the point. He's saying David's the king, but he's the king 
that points to Jesus, the king of everyone. The king whose kingdom is for everyone. The four model matriarchs of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah would have been perfect to put in here. Go be like them. But that's not what the point of this is. Matthew is showing us a new genesis. He's saying you need to understand not only how deep Christ's love is, forgiving these terrible sinners, but how wide it is in forgiving these Gentiles. Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. This passage brings that out, that this salvation is for everyone because Jesus is the king of everyone. Now we look at the second set of 14, starting in verse 6. And this gives us Jesus, our priest and our prophet. This is the downward slide, if you will, of, that, of the genealogy. See, Jesus' lineage is not a good one. There are some serious scandals. Here's a couple examples. Lying, kidnapping, murder, adultery, polygamy, idolatry, pride. And that's just the good kings. How ima- imagine how bad the bad kings are if that's your Solomon and your David. So this is, this is not a good thing. Jesus has no pattern of righteousness in his lineage. As a matter of fact, the 14 kings that are list, 12 kings that are listed here, eight of them are bad and four of them are good. And even the good ones started out bad or had some bad moments. But there's a point here that we need to not miss. Yeah, David is the king and David is the hinge point, but there's two changes to the genealogies. So look with me in verse 8. Verse 8 says, And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. This is not correct. Now bear with me. I'm going to explain to you why it was done. The actual king, his name was Asa. And we know this. It's actually listed in the Bible. That Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. So he changes it to this guy, Asaph. Now that name might be familiar to you. I'll explain to you why he did it in a second. But just like every single kid, at least used to, have their presidents memorized or their states in alphabetical order or the books of the Bible, the Jewish people had their kings memorized. And so when Matthew is saying this and he goes and skips over Asa, they would have gone, wait a sec, that's not right. It would be like saying, Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Adams, Jackson, Van Buren, and so on. Now, you noticed I made a mistake there, right? I I didn't include John Adams, the second president. Is it because I didn't know he was president? No. I'm making a point, though. Because if you know your history, you know that Alexander Hamilton, besides having a really interesting musical about him, has, he was behind the scenes in everything. And so a good historian saying something like that is not only saying, yeah, okay, I know that that's not the right order, but I'm showing you that I understand the deeper picture which is Hamilton ran the place. Adams was kind of just a a seat filler. So this is the same thing here. This is not a mistake. This is not a typo. This is not a oops. Instead, Matthew is continuing his portrait. Just like in the first 14, he adds in all these ladies. He calls David the only king. Same too when we get to Asa. He says, I'm going to say the name Asaph. Now Asaph was a psalmist. He's the second most popular psalmist in the Psalms behind who? David. 
He wrote many psalms. And so what Matthew is doing here is Matthew is saying not only is, is Jesus the king, but he's also the one the psalms and the wisdom look for. By saying Asaph, he's saying he's also the one that's your priest. Because remember, a priest's job is to take the people to the Lord. And that's what Asaph was doing with his words. And that's what Jesus is doing. And so throwing in, and he, didn't, and he could have just made up a name if he'd made a mistake, but instead he put a perfect name in that placeholder and said, Asaph. He's saying, this Jesus fulfills the Psalms and the wisdom. And now go look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Well, here's another one. One letter different. This king's real name is Amon, and he was not a good king. But that's not why he's not included here, because there's eight bad kings all around him, including Manasseh, who was not a good king either. So why does Matthew change this one? Well, here's the thing. Amos was a prophet in that same time period. And Amos was the prophet of go out and serve the Lord this direction. Yes, you've got this direction figured out, but go out and serve this way. And so what Matthew is doing is he's already said, we got the king, right? The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, David fills that. And we've got Asaph, the Psalms and the wisdom. But now we've got Amos, the prophets. Do you see what there's being painted here? Jesus is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. Not only that, he is fulfilling the three roles of God's anointed. The king, the priest, the prophet. Asaph, the psalm writer, he takes the, the nation of Israel to the Lord. Make vows to the Lord. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to God. Amos is the prophet of justice, of, of doing right by your neighbors. When he says, away with the noise of your songs. I will listen to your, not listen to your music of harps. Let justice roll along like a river. See, Amos and Asaph are teaching us, sometimes we're too engaged in the world. And so Asaph says, here, look to the Lord. Amos is the exact opposite, right? You're looking to the Lord, great, but if it's not affecting your day-to-day, then what's the use? If it hasn't gotten to your heart, if it hasn't gone out. And so what we see here is we see that this is what Jesus does, right? Jesus is a priest that takes us up to the Lord and says, look at what God is like. But he's also a prophet and says, how do you take care of your neighbor? Is that not what we see Jesus doing always? Here's what God's like, and here's what you should do in response. God not only forgives, but he demands. And God's assurance of forgiveness of sins means he has claim over all of our life. And so Jesus is our perfect priest in that he's the go-between between us and God, and he's our perfect prophet when he says, go and do. So now we have Jesus is a king, He's the prophet, he's the priest, and this leads us to the third 14. Jesus is our Messiah. This is that long march back up out of the nadir, of the low point. We're moving back out, moving up to the coming of Christ. Israel's at its lowest point. This is the end of lamentations, but yet God is climbing back out. And it may not even be obvious to the people that this is where it's going. James Baldwin says, God never seems to come when we want him. But when he shows up, it's always right on time. 
this final step of the genealogy, shows that God is faithful. He hasn't forgotten Israel. This is the answer to the end of Lamentations. Unless you be mad with us forever. That was what the end of Lamentations left. And not a cheery ending. And this is Jesus, this is God's answer. I am faithful and I love. And here you go. Here's Jesus. So in verses 12 through 13, we see Zerubbabel. This is when the nation of Israel comes back from the exile. And they're starting to build a nation over again. And then in sweeps the Romans. And then this section finishes with Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There's some interesting things here. The, the whom is singular, so it means Mary alone brought Jesus in. And then was born means that Mary was acted on. So it's starting to point forward to the virgin conception of Jesus, which we'll get into a little more next week. So we've got that Jesus is the Christ. It says it here. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. So is, is that the surprise? That all of a sudden we see this person who's the Messiah. Well, that would have been a little surprising, but there's more to it. Now, you've waited not long enough, but I'm going to make you wait one more minute. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from David to the deportation were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations. See, Matthew looks at this and he sees structure. He sees order. You can, you can hear Matthew getting excited. He's saying these periods all point to Jesus. These three 14s are all put here on purpose. This in is dramatic and it's on purpose. So he says Jesus is the rightful heir. He's the legal heir. He's the fulfillment of the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the covenants. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it all. So what's the deal with the 14s? Well, there's all sorts of theories. One is it makes it easy to remember. But I don't know, a list of 14 is hard to remember anyways. Some people say, well, 14 is because David's name equals 14. In Hebrew, there's only consonants, no vowels. And so David's name would be DVD, right? D is worth four, V is worth six, and the D is worth four. So you add that up, what is that? It's 14. Now that's pretty, that's pretty amazing right there. And I think that probably is true. But there's more to it than that. See, we've already seen king, priest, and prophet, but there's another problem here in this passage. And the problem is, when you count up the last 14, there's only 13. There's one missing. So we have all the fathers leading up to Jesus, and one is not included. It stops at Joseph. Notice it doesn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus. It says Joseph, the husband of Mary. And did Mary have a cloud over her a little bit? Yep. She got pregnant. She wasn't married. In that culture, that would have led to stoning. We'll talk about that a little more next week. So you've got this surprise here in that you have no father listed for Jesus and you have a scandalous woman put right back in there. So what does this mean? Where, where is the 14th? And this is where it gets good because the 14th generation is the divine father of Jesus Christ. This genealogy full of all sorts of kind of weird things, four women included, two name changes, finishes up with a third line, a final woman and a final change. 
that proves, that shows that not only is this man, this Jesus, the King, the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, but he's the perfect one because he is the Son of God. So the final point, the final secret is the one you all knew before you came in here, but I want you to see it, is that Matthew says Jesus is the perfect Son of God. And only by being that perfect Son of God is he able to be our priest, our prophet, our king, the perfect anointed one. Because you know what? Just like the genealogies of Jesus are full of train wrecks, so are we. And we need that perfect substitute. We need that perfect sacrifice in our place. So Matthew's portrait for chapter 1, we see the beginnings of this portrait. We see this collection of gems. We take the, the black and white and make it full color and can see Jesus in all of his splendor connecting us to God. See, we need a king to rule over us. We need a priest to help us worship God. We need a prophet to put that worship and give it legs. And every single priest, prophet, and king failed. But we have one who never did. The perfect son of God, the Christ, who died on our behalf, who lived on our behalf, who's our priest, prophet, and king. So now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? All of this is orchestrated. It's all on purpose. Every single part of it was planned out by God. Matthew clearly sees that. Do we see that God has perfectly planned out where we are right now? Do we see that in your life? You have been orchestrated and brought to this point right here, right now, for a purpose. You have a spot in your life right now where you need Jesus to be king, priest, or prophet. Is he ruling you? If he's not, confess him as king and repent. If you are not worshiping him, if you've let, you're worshiping other things, confess and repent. Help him to fix your worship. If you've got the worship thing down and the submitting to him thing down, but it's not translating into actions, Confess that you need him as your prophet and he is faithful and just to forgive because he is perfect. And if you're here and this is all new to you and you don't have any idea what any of this means, then you just need to confess him as Christ, as the Messiah and begin your journey to eternal life that you can experience right here and right now as you follow hard after Christ. It is the only way to experience Christ as your king, priest, and prophet. 